Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Fifth of November. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till eleven a.m. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The government, as you know, has published its climate action plan. Our new national climate objective requires this state to pursue and achieve, by no later than the end of the year two thousand and fifty, the transition to a climate resilient, biodiversity-rich, environmentally sustainable and climate-neutral economy. Getting there, 475 separate actions are planned before 2030, the cost of offshore wind power retrofitting homes and a million electric vehicles on Irish roads will make up much of the €125 billion this plan is costed at. This puts climate action at the heart of all of government's plans and policies over the next decade and beyond. The question now is if uh, the ambitious targets set in this plan will be met or is it just all talk? More of uh, the COP26 blah, blah, blah Greta Thunberg has been ridiculing. This government is determined to deliver change and this is why there is a very significant focus within this plan on delivery, ensuring we implement the policies, legislation and investments to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The Taoiseach speaking at a government press conference yesterday to launch uh, the Climate Action Plan and if the government does deliver on its commitments in this plan, Michal Martin says the rewards will be great for all of us. We will live up to the responsibility that we have to our children and to those yet to be born. We will have warmer homes, cleaner water, cleaner air to breathe and a country where people are more connected to each other and more connected to our natural environment. Let's discuss this now with Sinn Féin's spokesperson on the environment, Darren O'Rourke, who's a TD for Me, the East and Green Party TD, Joe O'Brien, who's Minister of State for Community Development. Good morning to both of you, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Minister, first of all, all of this is very laudable, but are we talking about realistic, realisable targets, and if so, how are they going to be met? Thank you, Michael. Uh, yes, uh, we are. Uh, I mean, it's ambitious. I think that's very clear. Uh, we need leadership on this. We need to be ambitious. And I suppose this plan is the next step in actually laying out some of the detail on how we're going to get there. Um, we have to do this. And, and I think the key message really is that while we're doing this, the country will see 
their lives getting better as well in terms of uh, transport getting cheaper, transport getting more accessible, uh, their homes getting warmer, uh, new job opportunities opening up as well, and at a wider level as well, Ireland having more control of the resources that we need uh, to run the country, uh, especially in terms of our electricity supply as well. We've got huge potential there. And ultimately, I think this, this plan is setting out a roadmap really to Ireland becoming a better country uh, uh, overall and, and improving quality of life in very tangible ways that people will see. Will it and be a better challenge as well? I think it's important that okay. a lot of people have been worried as well about what would be in this. But I think yesterday will give reassurance to a lot of sectors uh, that, you know, mm. n- nobody's going to be overburdened and we all have to share. Okay, and we'll talk about agriculture in a, a moment. But for uh, those outside of uh, that sector, uh, will this be a better country to live in? Will life be better uh, if you can afford it? Uh, I mean, what about people who don't have €30,000 or more for an electric car or people who don't have 50000 or or more to retrofit their homes? Yeah, well, I suppose on them two specific points, a lot of our retrofitting money is going directly into social housing stock. Uh, and certainly in terms of my responsibilities as well, I'm making sure that that happens and that people who are um, people who are worst off are, are going to benefit from this as well. In terms of the, the, the car cost, I mean, I think it's going to be over time uh, when people do decide to change their cars and everyone everyone does eventually, uh, that the choice that they have to make, will, will, it'll be mm. easier to the longer it takes the more you'll be paying for diesel and petrol and so on and if you're not in social housing and you don't have a lot of money in the bank you're not going to get your house retrofitted how much public money is going into this 125 billion well there will be there will be um, low interest loans as well for those people who, who who aren't in the social housing stock as well and i think people will see that the decisions that they make uh, will pay pay off over time that's certainly anyone who i've uh, spoke to who's gotten their house retrofitted, they, they get the payback in, in a much shorter period of time in terms of the cost of of, um, of heating their homes as well. And that's the case in running cars as well. Electric cars will be much cheaper to run too. Mm. But I would say the public transport system is going to be uh, bulked up significantly as well. And I think um, last, last week, the Connecting Ireland project that was launched by the MTA is envisaging a much, uh, much more enhanced um, local bus transport system as well. And I encourage viewers, or sorry, listeners, to actually um, engage in the public consultation on that because it will involve more and better local bus services in Loudoun Mead. Uh, if you go on the Connecting Ireland website, it's very important. I think that listeners will have their say in terms of where they want them buses to be. Quite a bit of research being done on where the, the deficit is on local bus services, uh, but Connecting Ireland very much want to hear people's views on, on where they feel the new services should be as well. And that really will give people very practical options to uh, to leave the car behind. OK. Darren O'Rourke, do you think that will be the upshot of it, uh, that the infrastructure will be in place uh, for public transport, uh, that you'll be able to leave the car behind, and if you can't leave the car behind, you'll be in a, an electric car? What do you make of that uh, part of uh, this plan? Yeah, look, uh, look, I think, uh, Michael, to, to say in relation to it, um, that like we have had plans before. Actually, a lot of this is is agreed. Really, the broad principle of it, you know, in terms of in energy, the shift to renewables and transport, the shift to active and public transport, and the electrification of the fleet, and in buildings, the need to retrofit. Um, so there's there's 
broad political consensus uh, and I think you know that's an important uh, starting point in terms of the need uh, to tackle climate change and and to have targets and then to achieve those targets I, I suppose what I would say is you know there's broad agreement we have plans we've had plans in the past the question then is how do you deliver on it and for for all the plans we've had for all the targets we've had we've missed practically all of them with maybe the exception of of renewables um my concern would be um that we're going to miss a lot of these um because um and and my argument would be that the the state has not taken a leading enough role in relation to these this transition and it's depending too much on um, and, and you know the the the, the pockets of uh, already hard pressed workers and families throughout the state. So, so take retrofitting, take electric vehicles. Like what we're expecting people to do, and I just don't see the 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 intention on behalf of families I'm talking to. You know they're they're struggling to make ends meet. If they have um, you know disposable income, they're looking you know they're looking for a new kitchen or they're looking for new windows and doors. They're not looking to spend you know up to eighty thousand euros on a deep retrofit. We don't have that that culture there yet, um, and I would be concerned that. So much of this plan is actually contingent on that like mindset shift, the cultural shift, the tradition in Ireland shifting towards something that isn't there. Um, and that, I think, is a recipe for, for missing your, your targets. Um, I, I, in fairness... You Does know, that mean that we can't provide leadership? Because uh, that seems to be what you're saying. Uh, I mean, the objective here is to save the planet, and surely people want to do that, and we can bring people with us if that is uh, the intention. But if you start off from a, a negative point saying you can't convince people, well, then you're not going to do it. No, no, I, I think I think the, the point uh, and, and the weakness I see in it is that the state isn't doing enough to support people. So, so in fairness, there are plans there to, to ring-fence funding and to, mm. to support those in, in, in lower income. Um, but there's a huge swathe in the middle, Michael, who are already struggling. Well, you just heard low-interest loans and social housing will be retrofitted uh, 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 by the state. Uh, so what else do you want? Yeah, so, so the €125 billion Euros there is a, a lot, you know, a huge amount of that is to be made up by... By, by workers and families, mm. and I just I I, I would be uh, that's, concerned. That's really I would, not a fair depiction I, at all. I have to say, sorry to cut across, but that's not a fair depiction. Well, by by pr- by private money, I think it's true to say, Joe O'Brien, is it not? I mean, whether that's companies building offshore wind farms or that's people retrofitting their homes or buying electric cars, that will make up an awful lot of that 125 billion. Well, yeah. Well, private companies investing in in, in yeah. offshore wind—it's it's, it's wise to use private money to do that, rather yeah. than to put that on. But, but, but that's the point I think Darren O'Rourke was making, was it not? Darren O'Rourke. Well, I think Darren is saying that this is going to cost uh, families and, and, and workers, but I'd argue the absolute opposite. Well, I think he was saying, in fairness, that the state is not putting enough money into it. And uh, 125 billion uh, over overall the national development no, plan. That no, 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 that's, that's the point no, he's no, making. The sorry, state is not sorry, putting sorry. 125 billion in. That into is it. exactly the point. The state is not putting. But the point is the national development plan, an enormous investment, and we actually billion, have yeah. a ten-year plan for transport and energy, like no other national development plan has had before as well. So really, it's it's not a it's not a valid argument to say the state is not investing enough 
into no, this no, transition. No, no. So, so, so I, I, I would argue that that it's it's the, actually the the most important argument in relation to this is that the state isn't investing enough. So, so the state is investing 35 billion in the national development plan. Um, it's it's dependent on a carbon tax, which I I would argue, and I think there's a big question mark in terms of the, despite you know my party has a position in relation to the carbon tax, but. Um, the government's position is, is that it will take in 9.5 billion euros that will be ring-fenced over the next 10 years. There's a serious question mark over that figure. Um, so, Can so I just call there's an extreme contradiction here now? Because stash of money, Darren. The state's money is the people's money, and we gather that money through taxation. So you can't have a cut-off carbon tax and at the same time say that the state isn't investing enough. That's absolutely contradictory. No, it, it's not contradictory. So, so, so just to make my position absolutely clear in relation to this, I want to see, you know, and I haven't gone through every line by line uh, detail in this proposal. I want to see this plan broadly delivered. I want to see the, the targets achieved for 2030 and 2050. I am serious about that. My party is serious about that. The question is, how do you achieve it? It seems to me that the proposal here is for the state to go some of the way and then to lean on to a very significant degree the, the out-of-pocket payments of ordinary workers and families. And no, no, I am, excuse me, I am at raising the serious concern that I have and my party has that that is not going to happen to the degree that is uh, required and that will be a fundamental weakness of this plan okay. that will mean the plan won't be delivered. Let the Minister come back and briefly please Minister because uh, I think we should talk about agriculture. A very short question. Mm. Darren, where, where is the state going to get the money that you think we, we should be getting more of? So, so uh, and Sinn Féin outlined... Who are we going to tax? Mm, yeah. can, can I respond now? Well, so, briefly, I mean, there's different ways of raising money and Sinn Féin exactly. has a different uh, approach, exactly, obviously, whether yeah, we, it's well we, taxes or whatever. We, we, I mean, we outline a, an alternative proposal okay. uh, every year, and, and, it's within that, and actually our, our budget envelope has gone further than, than this uh, government this year, this, uh, despite the fact that we don't need to, to, to rely on the carbon tax. But the other thing I would say, Joe, and, I, and, and I'm, I'm doing this in all seriousness, I, the Irish government and the international community need to look at this in terms of, like, we need a, a pandemic-type response in relation to uh, the, the climate crisis. Right. Okay, okay, there's agreement there. So let's talk about agriculture. Do either of you think uh, that we're going to cut methane emissions by 30% by 2030? Darren O'Rourke. Yeah, I, I think, look, the, uh, in, in any of this, Michael, um, well, the, the commitment is 10% uh, uh, for, for, the, for the Irish government, as, as I understand it, and um, the, the, global, the global commitment is, is 30%. Mm. 90% of, of our methane is biogenic methane, and, and the 30% global commitment is, is a different proposition because a lot of that is, is, is easily done because it's only about, it's, it's a matter of dealing with leakage from oil and gas fields. In, in the Irish context, I think you have to look at the role of agriculture. Um, I think there's, uh, you know, uh, there's a recognition that it plays a really important uh, role in, in rural Ireland, that we have to 
there's going to have to be changes. There is a commitment to make a 10% cut. I think that needs to happen. Um, there are, you know, a, a range of, of options in terms of, of changes of approach, in terms of genetics, in terms of grasses, in terms of feeds. Um, we, we do need to move away from, and like it, it certainly wasn't Sinn Féin calling for the intensification of Irish farming. It wasn't Sinn Féin incentivising that over the okay. recent years. So and you agree with that? Do you agree that we say on the global stage that it's going to be 30% and then we say it's 10%? Uh, the agriculture sector is said uh, to see a reduction in greenhouse gases of between 22 and 30%. Uh, but uh, if we're saying 30% in terms of methane and then we're aiming for 10%, does that not feed into that rhetoric uh, that we're going to hear a lot more of today from Greta Thunberg? Blah, blah, blah. It's all talk and no action. I, I'm, I'm, I, to be fair, Michael, I'm not sure you're, you're comparing apples with apples there in terms of the, the type of measures that need to be uh, taken to reduce a significant amount of that 30% on a global scale is a different proposition than uh, the, the Irish economy, the, 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 Irish, um, the, the role of agriculture in, in the Irish economy. Um, you know, the, I, I think it's a, it's a different equation, if you like. And that's, that's without uh, letting agriculture off the hook here at all. They have to do their fair share of lifting. And, and if they don't, I think everything needs to be on, on the table in terms of how you, you reach those targets. But Minister. You have to reach them. Minister, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I've got a particular interest in the area. I grew up in a dairy farm. I'm a minister in the Department of Rural and Community Development. Um, I've spent a lot of time the last few months actually visiting farms around the country that are uh, practicing climate-friendly methods. Uh, and I think there's a lot can be done in that regard as well. I think people underestimate farmers as well. Farmers are they're business people, so uh, the decision to, to make changes has to be economically viable. And I think it's our job as a government to to make the changes economically viable and to diversify farms as well. Uh, when I grew up on a farm, we had various different income streams. Should so, be, so go into forestry or whatever. Exactly. Forestry, the organic mm. side of things needs a lot of improvement and I think we're committed on doing that. And, and I think there'll be hopefully some reassurance in yesterday's plan uh, that the government is committed to actually giving farmers options rather than necessarily forcing them into doing A, B or C. So... Uh, no, I think there's a bright future for farming. Do you mean options after uh, they decide to farm less cattle? No, no, I don't mean that. I, I, I mean other ways of making income uh, and making your business more secure and viable uh, into the future as well. Yeah, so it's not necessary to farm as much cattle? If farmers decide to do that, uh, that would be a benefit of, of the plan. But I think it needs to be their economic decision as, as business people to do that. And, and I suppose that's, that's the best way we can do this. Uh, to make it clear to people. It'll have to be done though, won't it? I, I mean, if 60% of the emissions from agriculture come from methane, you're going to need less cows uh, in order to reach any targets. That's not necessarily the case, but I do think that the best way of doing this overall, and particularly in agriculture, is to bring people with us and to listen to the farmers on the ground. And there's a lot of good practice happening there and there's a lot of good practice spreading as well. But ultimately, as I said, we have to make it economically viable for farmers to change their practice and to diversify as well. Okay. And this plan is committed to doing that. All right. I have to leave it there. Thank you both for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, that is uh, Joe O'Brien, who's a Green Party TD for Dublin Fingal and Minister of State for Community Development. And we were also speaking to Sinn Féin TD for Meade, Darren O'Rourke, who is his party spokesperson on the environment. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Uh, I was reading about uh, the murder of a, a 32-year-old Brazilian 
Brazilian woman in Finglas yesterday in uh, the Irish Sun this morning. And it really is dreadful, uh, the details of uh, the story. Let's uh, talk to Stephen Breen, who's uh, the crime editor with uh, the Irish Sun. A very good morning to you, Stephen, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, You say that sources describe what they saw in this fifth floor flat as brutal and gruesome. And it certainly seems to be the case reading the Sun. Uh, this morning, but there will be many questions uh, I think about this murder because uh, a man arrested at the scene on suspicion of murder was arrested earlier in the week. Tell us more. Yeah, it really is another horrific crime committed against a woman on this island, Michael. Uh, on this occasion, you have an individual who's now been arrested by the Gardaí. Um, he was someone who was known to the Gardaí for his erratic behaviour. Um, in recent months, he'd been arrested for, on public order incidents in the past. He was indeed just arrested um, just, just last week. Uh, he was he was arrested by Gardaí when he was outside walking around in his underwear. Um, the, the guards have no knowledge of any domestic violence incidents at the apartment where it was taking place. It's believed that his partner is the victim of this horrific and, and brutal murder. Um, he had been arrested in the past, but there was a concern uh, relating to this individual's mental health well-being. So I'm sure as the guards are continuing to question him, that will form uh, part of their inquiry. But um, it's not clear at, at this stage if he's going to be charged uh, with, with murder. And there will be questions, obviously. There will be questions, obviously, uh, about why this man was released when he was found walking around in, in his mm-hmm. underwear because Gardy arrested him on O'Connell Street in his boxers uh, and uh, then he was held under the Mental Health Act. He was seen by a doctor, was he? Mm-hmm. Yes, he was examined by a doctor and then the doctor deemed that he was okay um, to be released. Um, I know before in previous occasions when he had been arrested, um, guards had expressed concern for his, his mental well-being. And on one occasion when he was arrested, he was in the, one of the, the cells in the, the Fingless Garter Station and he was praying and he was chanting uh, religious uh, sentiments as well. So um, he, he was known to the Gardaí, but, but, but someone who wasn't involved in serious or organised crime or anything, but on this occasion um, he, he has, uh, I believe, to be the, the main perpetrator of this terrible act. He's the individual who rang 999 and told the guards what he had done and the, 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 the victim in this case suffered horrendous injuries. He's also Brazilian, also 32 years of age, and uh, the injuries uh, the victim suffered uh, were great and terrible. Oh, horrific injuries to her um, her, her neck, uh, her head. It, it's understood that he, indeed when he did make the uh, 999 call to the guards, he, he indicated that um, you know, she had broken his heart, so you know he was going to really cause her serious damage, and he did kill her, and the, the, the concern is that he may have tried to decapitate her as well. So it, it really is horrific, and it's, it's not the, the type of thing that normally happens in, in that area. It's, it's, a, it's a busy area. It's a, a lot of apartments there. Local councillors spoke to my, my colleague yesterday and spoke about their shock, and, and this has happened. One of the, the individuals that works in the local coffee shop was, was talking about how the locals were there were shocked because they knew him, and they also knew the victim in this case. So there is a real sense of shock across the whole area. Okay. We'll beg many questions, I think, of how people who are suspected or believed to have mental health problems are dealt with uh, by the system, if you like, after being arrested uh, 
pretty much naked walking down the middle of O'Connell Street uh, and then held under the Mental Health Act and and, uh, seen by a doctor before being released uh, and that happening days before this horrific murder. As I say, I think it'll ask many questions uh, of uh, the authorities, Stephen. We'll leave it there, though, for the moment and thank you indeed uh, for joining us as always on the programme. Stephen Breen, Crime Editor of The Irish Sun. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, high-level talks uh, will take place uh, today between uh, the British and uh, the European Union on Brexit or the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, which, according to the Irish Times uh, this week, uh, may be in trouble uh, and uh, there's an expectation that the British government may trigger Article 16, something which uh, the Taoiseach said would be irresponsible, unwise and reckless. Uh, let's uh, speak uh, to the Minister for European Affairs, local Fianna Fáil TD, me, the East, Thomas Byrne, who's on the line. Uh, a very good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, how real is uh, the concern uh, that the British might actually take the nuclear option? Well, I suppose the reality is that they've been talking about this for some time. Uh, the Commission then went and listened to people in Northern Ireland what they want. I think I've come up with a really, really good package that seems to be what people want. We've seen various opinion polls on that. But we still hear the talk coming from London, uh, the soundings, the, uh, what the Taoiseach, I think, called sabre-rattling uh, about Article 16. And that's, it is very, very worrying. There's no two ways about it. And I think the Taoiseach in the doll this week made a very, very clear statement, really a warning, uh, at Britain, a friendly warning, um, that there would be very, very serious consequences for, for Britain uh, if Article 16 uh, were to be triggered. It would have very bad consequences for Northern Ireland, undoubtedly it would have if Britain did that, but also for us too. Um, but Britain, I think, seems to have the view that they can just do this and there would be no consequences whatsoever, and I think that view is absolutely incorrect. Mm. What would happen? Well, again, uh, there's a range of scenarios there as to what could happen. And quite frankly, I'd rather not get into the the realm of speculation because I think what we have here uh, is is a proposal by the European Commission based on agreements that have been entered into between Britain and the European Union uh, to deal with the issues that business uh, communities and indeed the British government raised. um, And we think that the European Commission has done a very good job on that. Business in Northern Ireland seems to think the same. Mm. There's talk taking place today and like I think... Uh, it really is coming to the time now when when, when this thing uh, needs to be resolved. Okay. Well, yeah, I suppose uh, there's uh, many different scenarios uh, which could uh, happen as a, a result of uh, such an action if uh, they were to take it. Uh, but they're obviously close to the edge at uh, this stage. Uh, uh, how close do you think they are? Well, I think the European Union certainly can't go any further than it has, uh, except to the extent that there's some room in the talks that are taking place today and that are ongoing between officials. There is always a little bit of mm. uh, discussion uh, around the proposals that have been there. But in terms of substantive issues, the European Union can't go any further. And quite frankly, it's, it's fair to say uh, that people and other member states, and I think you've seen what the teacher has said about our views, mm. uh, people are getting extremely frustrated as to what's going on. Could this collapse today? Uh, if the British, and I, I take it you've been referring to the European Court of Justice, if the European Court of Justice is a line in the sand uh, for the British and the European Union say, no, it has to stay there, uh, could this collapse today? I, I doubt it will collapse today, um, but I suppose that's always possible. Um, technical talks have been taking place. I suppose they're going to me today to sort of take stock. I would hope that those talks can continue. I mean, quite frankly, we have tried to stay 
fairly calm about this, firm in our determination to see agreements uh, complied with. Mm. But the reason we've tried to remain calm is because the situation in Northern Ireland, as you and the listeners to this radio show know, know as much as anybody, the situation is very, very delicate. Mm. Um, and, and there's 12 and 13-year-olds up in Belfast going mad about this, apparently. Well, you see, this is the problem where there's mm. a vacuum. Yeah. And the, if the British and Irish government are not working together with one voice in Northern Ireland, you create a vacuum, you create space for all sorts of people to fill that vacuum and to influence children, particularly yeah. uh, young boys from, from, from what we would say are deprived areas. Yeah. That's a real problem at the moment, and it's precisely why uh, we've been trying to stay calm at this, and precisely why, quite frankly, we cannot understand uh, the position of the British government, which seems to be appealing to a particular type of voter in certain particular parts of England, mm. without any regard whatsoever for what the situation on the ground is, where lives are at stake, not just mm. livelihoods in Northern mm. Ireland, but mm. where lives are at stake. With no regard to people in Newton Arts uh, who might have been getting on a, a bus earlier in the week. I mean, it is just it is yeah. just extraordinary. But again, mm. a vacuum was was uh, created. It was filled there by people saying we'd sort out this protocol by November. November came. Talks are still going on. The vacuum's still there. And people then come in uh, to fill that. The, the lesson of the peace process is that you, there are three strands of that relationship. You must have people in Northern Ireland working together, the parties in the Assembly. To be fair, they're doing that. It's difficult, but they are doing that. North-South, we are certainly doing our best in North-South. That's very, very difficult as well because sometimes the DUP uh, boycott those meetings. East-West relations, I won't say they're bad between Britain and Ireland, but quite frankly, uh, they are not at the level that they should be at. Um, and I, this is a refrain I hear right across the European Union that people don't seem to know what Britain is thinking. The communications between Britain and other countries uh, are non-existent. Um, you know, I was at, for example, the OECD recently where the US trade representative was chairing a meeting. And quite frankly, I couldn't believe that Britain didn't have a senior minister uh, at the table when they're talking about you know, we're going to be making all these trade deals. When John Kerry had um, Anthony Blinken, but the trade representative as well. And Britain had a mid-ranking civil servant and ambassador, as I understand, at that particular meeting. And I, I just couldn't believe it. Mm. This is a country that's talking about all this engagement that they're doing around the world. It's quite frankly not happening. And unfortunately here uh, in, Northern, in, in, in Ireland, we're seeing the results of that in a very, very dangerous way. And I sincerely hope uh, and I, uh, people are listening to this. Um, certainly there's no doubt some... Some British officials are listening to this, but this is a plea to take seriously the situation in Northern Ireland, to realise that people's lives are at stake, that livelihoods are at stake, and it's time to stop the messing, to engage seriously um, with the European uh, Commission and come to a prize that all of us can cherish and value, which is peace in Northern Ireland, prosperity in Northern Ireland. Then let's have whatever other row we want to have between Britain and the European Union, let them them off. But please keep Northern Ireland out of it. Everybody might want peace... uh but you're not going to get a prize that everybody will cherish. Uh, I mean, e- even if uh, the European Commission was uh, to uh, allow uh, for some different way uh, of uh, overlooking uh, the agreement, a different system of oversight instead of the European Court of Justice, which is what the British are looking for, an independent uh, over. Site um, that won't be to the satisfaction of the p- political parties in Northern Ireland on the unionist side. Uh, have they boxed themselves into a corner that they can't get out of? Well, look, I think we've seen over the years unionist politicians can make very strong statements, but I think at the end of the day, they're practical men and women. This is not a practical issue. No, the European Court of Justice has no jurisdiction over Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland has access to the European single market by virtue of the protocol, and the European Court of Justice is the ultimate arbiter of that single market. That's just the way it is. 
But the idea that some court case affecting somebody in Northern Ireland ends up in the European Court of Justice is completely wrong and simply will never happen. But the European Court of Justice may, in some theoretical case, decide is on maybe the labelling of goods or mm. quality standards of goods, but not in Northern Ireland, within the European Union. Um, and within the single market, Northern Ireland has access to that single market. So it's a very, very technical point. Mm-hmm. It seems to be raised to the highest levels for reasons I can only, I'm not even going to speculate at, but it is some, something that will not affect a single person in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Um, it, it's hard to know. I mean, it's like a slow car crash. It's hard to know what uh, the British believe will be the outcome uh, because it seems to be only going in one direction. Well, it's also difficult to know what exactly they mean by invoking Article 16. That's that's a difficult question as well, because the idea that you invoke Article 16 and suddenly everything goes away, and the protocol goes away, is, is not the case. Mm. Um, but it's, I think it's unclear probably to most people exactly what they mean by this. And we've seen some uh, examples of the uncertainty that Britain is in on this. Yeah. They have leaked to the media that they've taken external legal advice on that. Now, that suggests to me um, that either they're not entirely clear what they're going to do, or they don't have a clear legal basis as to what they're going to do. Because Can they go back to the drawing board and renegotiate Brexit from scratch? Well, they'd have to, No, because the, 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 withdrawal, the withdrawal agreement, which the protocol is part of, is, is part of their exit from the European Union. So mm. unless they're coming back in, and quite frankly, they'd be welcome, um, because they've just created all these problems for themselves, all these problems in Northern Ireland, mm. problems for exporters. They're not getting trade deals that they keep talking about. They've, re- they've basically replicated quite a few trade deals. Sure, but that, that, that withdrawal agreement was uh, extended out uh, in time many times over. Could it not be extended out uh, again? I mean, is that not, is that, is that not uh, the game they're playing? No, well, well, on that point, they, they could have extended it out again, actually, by June of last year. And in the middle of a pandemic, a pandemic, why they didn't do that again, you'd have to ask them that question. I mean, it was quite frankly unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, so they went ahead, exited the European Union um, last year. The protocol was in place for quite some time. And in fact, this time last year, December last year, um, the European Union and the British government had agreed how to implement the protocol because that was a worry this time. I was on, I was on the phone, uh, radio to you this time last year with that mm, issue mm. but they'd agreed we'd do this and then uh, Michael Gove uh, was replaced by David Frost and a, a different view came in and you know again as the British government think it's very clever following what the right wing newspapers Telegraph Express etc are uh, urging them to do in Northern Ireland you know this week they were urged to you know support uh, a corrupt MP by those same newspapers and they see how badly that went. So I think the Taoiseach was quite, you know, um, far-seeing by saying there will be consequences for this. Consequences that, quite frankly, I don't think that they understand. But the consequences that your listeners, my constituents, our neighbours uh, on the border, our neighbours across and our friends and relations across the border know exactly what the consequences will be. They will be dire for Northern Ireland and yeah. we cannot allow this to happen. And the European Union, to be fair, is doing absolutely everything to make sure that this doesn't happen. Uh, we saw an opinion poll yesterday in Northern Ireland as well, and that's very important. There's a majority of parties in, in, in the Assembly currently, but also in the opinion polls for the next Assembly election, who support the protocol. Let's give the people in Northern Ireland their say, their voice. They support the protocol. They support, you know, working constructively with the European Union because it's in their interests, in the interests of their lives, in the interests of their livelihoods as well. Okay, Minister, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Thanks very much. That's uh, Thomas Byrne, Fianna Fáil TD for Mead East and the Minister for European Affairs. 
Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, a proposal to establish a dedicated transport uh, policing unit has been rejected uh, by the government. Uh, that proposal came from independent Senator Victor Boyton, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you, Senator. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. This is in line with the concerns uh, that those working in the, the transport sector have uh, and indeed... Uh, Concerns which could lead to, to industrial action uh, being taken uh, by the NBORU. Uh, tell us what you are proposing, uh, because uh, this uh, is uh, something uh, that uh, the workers uh, would like to see in some sense, but not a standalone unit. They're saying that it should be members of the existing force that should be policing the trains. What was it that you were proposing? Well, firstly, good morning, Michael. I'm delighted to join your programme and, and your listeners. And I suppose the first thing I want to say is that I, I have for a long time been deeply concerned about the frontline staff and the passengers, you know, uh, using the public uh, transport network, being exposed to threats of sexual assault and, and aggressive, drunken and antisocial behaviour. It's totally unacceptable. And I suppose it came to a crunch last week when the General Secretary, uh, Dermot O'Leary of the National Bus and Rail Union, said his staff simply had had enough and it was high time something was done by the government about it. I had also heard reports from staff coming into Leinster House uh, who travelled from around the country telling me of terrible experiences on transport. One coming from Drogheda, one coming up from, from Galway, and one actually coming from Port Leash. And again, telling me firsthand in my office of some of the difficulties and some of the problems and saying that, look, it is unacceptable that people feel intimidated and afraid to travel on public transport and more importantly, their experiences of seeing first-hand antisocial behaviour and simply no one doing anything about it or at least everyone on the train afraid to mm. take action and so something had to be done and I am proposing and tried to propose last week in the Shannon, this week, shall I say, is similar to what happens in Britain where you have a transport policing uh, system across the public transport network. Okay, but that they would be members of Angarda Síochána. Well, my, my, my actual amendment to what was a Fine Gael motion on public transport left that pretty loose. It suggested that we needed a policing, a dedicated policing unit. I didn't want to prescribe too tightly to in any way give the minister an excuse to prevent action taking place. Mm. What I had suggested is that some form of dedicated high visibility policing would be on all our public transport. I talk about trains, I talk about buses, I talk about Lewis, I talk about the dart, any public transport if we have to be consistent with government policy of encouraging people to come on public transport, and I know many of your listeners in the area that you particularly cover travel up and down to Dublin every day, we've got to give them the confidence hmm. that they can travel safety, safely on public transport to their work. Should we be hesitant about getting on a train? Absolutely not. We should have zero tolerance to any antisocial behaviour. But, but are, are you confident it's not dangerous? Uh, I mean, you may put the fear well, of God into people already. Well, I'm not confident, and listening to Dermot O'Leary mm. from the National Bus and Railway Union, his staff have had enough. Mm. They are afraid mm. to go to work, their place of work. So if they're afraid to go to work and they're having difficulties, what do you expect of the public? So um, my take from what Dermot O'Leary has put on the record in, 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 in the media in recent days 
and from what people have told me coming to travelling to work uh, are telling me that they are afraid and they want not only secure, very good, robust secure systems in place, but they want high visibility and they want a zero tolerance in relation to antisocial behaviour on our transport network. Mm. So uh, how do we address that? We have got to put some form of public policing uh, visible. It has to be high visible uh, and visible that the people can see it's there, Mm. uh, that they can go on public transport. Okay, Uh, should trains in particular be uh, treated like the streets, uh, that you would have Gardaí there to police trains or or carriages on trains in the way that you would uh, have Gardaí to police the streets to stop people from urinating uh, or uh, acting antisocially, fighting, boxing matches, uh, taking heroin or selling cocaine or whatever it is. Uh, And the reason I'm asking you that is uh, that uh, perhaps uh, from what you said earlier on, uh, particularly women uh, who may not walk the streets at night on their own might think twice about getting on a train on their own uh, if there's the risk of being sexually assaulted. Absolutely, and I think you make a point there. And and if you think even of coming out of COVID, how many people want, and the politicians in Leinster House talk about cranking up the night economy. Whatever about travelling in a day, certainly people are not going to travel at night. And I'm hearing stories of blocked up toilets on our public trains, and they're blocked up with people shooting up heroin and the like. It's horrific. It is a nightmare. No one, but nobody should be exposed to it. So, yes, there's going to have to be high visibility policing on our public transport network. And I'm somewhat surprised, given the debate about this issue in recent days and comment by on Taoiseach, who said recently that he vowed to crack down on the scourge of thuggery. I mean, let's get these thugs off our public transport, is my cry, is my call. And the Taoiseach said that, you know, he'll no, leave no stone unturned and that the Gardaí and the public transport chiefs would crack down. But it's not happening. Uh, and, I mean, they had an ideal opportunity in a very simple, cra- uh, crafted amendment to their motion on public transport that I proposed and had support only from the Labour Party and Sinn Féin and independence. But the government parties present in the chamber, all of Fine Gael, and Fianna Fáil and the Greens, who were present in the chamber, voted against this simple measure to take on this antisocial behaviour issue and basically to force the thugs of our trains and our buses and mm. our public transport network. That's disappointing. You know, they had an opportunity. Mm. They, t- they didn't stand in solidarity with the travelling public and they certainly didn't stand in solidarity with the National Bus and Rail Union uh, workers who have been crying out for a public policing on our public transport network. That's that has to be very disappointing. It's also interesting uh, in uh, the day that's in it uh, because uh, we're going to get lots more public transport uh, under the Climate Action Plan. Uh, we know already that it's quite expensive to use public transport and you're certainly not guaranteed a seat. Uh, and if uh, this is on top of that, uh, that really is a concern to people. Uh, but as you say, that's been rejected for the moment. Uh, I don't think we're going to hear the end of uh, this for some time uh, because uh, the MBRU uh, is contemplating industrial action. Uh, and perhaps uh, we can come back to you uh, at some stage in the future. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning. That's Independent Senator Victor Boyhan. Now, let me come to some of the many comments that have been coming to us uh, today. We've had a particularly busy programme 
uh, this morning and an awful lot of people in touch with us. So let's uh, try and hear some of uh, the things uh, that you've been saying to us. Peter is in Drogheda and he says it's all very well if you want to save uh, the planet. And I'd love nothing more than to have my home retrofitted, but who's going to pay for it? Unfortunately, I just about have enough money to live on. I have a very small sum put away for a rainy day, but that's it. In many cases, it's not that people don't want to make changes, it's that they can't afford to do it. Thanks, uh, Peter, for your call to the programme this morning. Uh, John in Drogheda about climate change as well. John says it seems to him that the planning laws in this country are a serious problem. I, I just heard that the Norwegian energy company Equinor, which was going to build wind farms off the Irish coast, have now pulled out of the Irish market because we've been so slow with legislation to modernise and reform the system for developing offshore wind generation capacity. We're shooting ourselves in the foot, says John. Thank you indeed, uh, John, for that. Uh, something that we discussed yesterday on the programme with Timmy Dooley. Uh, A call or a message on WhatsApp from a listener who's wondering if now is the time to think of buying second-hand electric cars. The emphasis is being put on buying new, but is beyond a lot of people. Maybe buying second-hand electric cars is the real way forward for many of us. Thanks uh, indeed uh, for that. I suppose as time goes on, Uh, there'll be more electric cars anyway and uh, if uh, your budget is such that you can't afford a new car you may be looking at uh, as many second-hand electric cars as diesel cars or petrol cars as the case may be interesting thought though thank you indeed if you have been in touch with us so far today Michael Reed on LMFM. As you've been hearing this morning, Ireland has uh, cancelled some orders for COVID-19 vaccines and uh, the reason is uh, to allow for vaccines to be made available in countries where they are not otherwise available. It's an interesting situation, particularly given the comments of uh, the Director General of the World Health Organization yesterday. No more vaccines should go to countries that have already vaccinated more than 40% of their population until COVAX has the vaccines it needs to help other countries get there too. No more boosters should be administered except to immunocompromised people. Most countries with high vaccine coverage continue to ignore our call for a global moratorium on boosters at the expense of health workers and vulnerable groups in low-income countries who are still waiting for the first dose. A very different situation, obviously, in different parts of uh, the world. Let's talk about the situation here and uh, undoubtedly elsewhere with Professor Jack Lambert, who's Professor of Medicine and Consultant in Infectious Diseases at the UCD School of Medicine. Good morning to you, Professor Lambert. Thanks, as always, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, people will find that peculiar uh, coming uh, from uh, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus uh, speaking in Geneva yesterday saying that if you have 40% of uh, the population vaccinated, uh, you should call it a day at that and allow people in other parts of the world access to vaccines. What do you make of it? Well, you know, I, I mean, the reality is, is we've had vaccines available since December of last year. So we've had a year to scale up production, okay, of vaccines, not just in Ireland and the European Union, but throughout the world. So so I get back to Mr. Tedros saying, oh, we haven't scaled up production of vaccines, therefore we have to 
share vaccines with 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 other countries. I, I, I'm not sure that's that that is that that's the reality of the situation. Mm. The reality of the situation is 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 they haven't scaled up production of vaccines, and and but we actually have to ask the question. Why not? And then the next question is: Is it the responsibility of every individual country then to, to 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 give the vaccine that we have in Ireland, or the vaccine they have in Israel, the vaccine they have in America, mm. to ship that vaccine off to third world countries where the WHO or these organisations that, that that are involved in, you know, vaccine for third world countries that they haven't scaled up their vaccine production? So, so I'm not sure I I, I agree with his. His his mandate, I think. I think this is a this this is an emergency, you know, situation. You know, COVID nineteen, and and I'm not saying we should ignore other countries. I think we should support other countries, but I'm not sure shipping vaccine that that could be that, that is necessary to be used in, in Ireland for us to continue to survive safely is the solution. That we should be able to do both, to uh, provide more vaccine here and uh, to make sure that uh, dark corners of the world, if you like, uh, particularly in the global south, uh, have access uh, to vaccinations. Uh, And of course, we've gone way past that 40% figure here. We're at about 90%. We're going into booster vaccines uh, for the over 65s and for healthcare workers, despite that global uh, appeal from the World Health Organization. And I think the Taunish indicating today that even more people could uh, be able to avail of boosters. Is that something that you would like to see happen? Well, I think that's a necessary requirement for continuing, you know, for continuing safely in Ireland. I mean, the the, the reality is, is, I mean, I thought that if we got two, two, two doses of vaccines, we might be good for a year or two. But the data coming out is shows that the vaccine immunity is fairly short-lived. You know, it starts to drop off even after six months. So, yes, booster, booster vaccinations are going to become, I think, a requirement in the future. And, and that's that's for for all populations. Immunocompromised patients are are you know getting reinfected despite having received the vaccines. Now the good news is is that people are not as sick having received the vaccine. They're not ended up as many people sick in the hospital and the ICU. So that so the first the first couple of vaccines everybody's received has been you know has has helped people. But moving forward, I think booster vaccines are required for the immunocompromised, and they're also, I think, required for healthcare workers. If you look at the number of healthcare workers that are out right now with COVID, you know, it's thousands, and some hospitals have closed down some of their wards because they don't have enough staff. So if we start seeing a surge of COVID in Ireland, and, and we don't have, and we have, you know, we don't have healthcare workers that can take care of them, I think the the only solution is to continue with our booster vaccine strategy and and see what we can do to support you know third world countries not not listen to a mandate from you know from the who you know that that mm. is basically um i think a failure of you know the who and the agencies who are supposed to be scaling up vaccination production in third worlds and distribution of vaccines in third worlds i think there's a failure there but two wrongs don't make a right okay uh, we're going from bad to worse, it seems. Uh, is that any surprise to you? We've seen the cases go from two to 3,000, uh, and uh, Leo Radker saying today uh, expected to exceed 4,000. Yeah, well, well, no surprise. As you go into the winter months, uh, people go indoors. There's more spread of, vi- of virus. Um, you know, I think the vaccine antibodies are dropping off. So, so uh, you know, and then kids went back to school in September, and I know the government kind of said that, um, that, 
just in the last few days, the numbers have been increasing in, you know, school-aged children. But if you actually go back and look at the statistics, um, in September, you know, when we had 25,000 cases in a one-month period, 30% of cases during September, from from my review of the, you know, the, 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 the statistics on the HPA website, 30% of cases were kids 12 and under. So, you know, it was ram- it was running through the, the, the school population in September and October. And now, you know, as we open up, uh, you know, other parts of society um, without a plan for keeping the numbers down, there's no surprise the numbers have gone up. Um, we, we, need to, we need to have a strategy to live safely with COVID. And the schools and the nightclubs and all of the community organizations need guidance. And I think that guidance has been lacking uh, using the nightclubs as an example, we open the nightclubs and a week later we give them guidance on what COVID mitigation they should instigate one week after they open. That's not good enough. Okay, and they're going to start vaccinating young children in America, aren't they? Should we follow that example? Well, I, I, I think I think that is, you know, there's different reasons to vaccinate. And I, I, I think, I, I think you know, that... that um, the one reason to vaccinate is to keep people get sick. The second reason to vaccinate is, is to prevent, you know, onward spread. Because um, kids are bringing the vaccine home to granny, you know, from when they go to daycare and this and that. So I think that's the strategy we use for influenza. Are we not inf- vaccinating everybody five and older for influenza to keep influenza? You know, both for the kids not getting sick, but also for them not bringing it home. So I do think it's a good idea to entertain the idea of vaccinating younger children. The second thing is, despite the fact that, you know, that, that most kids kind of get over COVID, there is this kind of COVID kind of Kawasaki that affects the heart. It's a rare event, but if it's your child that gets, uh, you know, kind of heart damage from, you know, a COVID infection and there's a vaccine to prevent it, I think that's, that's unacceptable. And then finally, a certain percentage of young adults and children, you know, can get long COVID after getting the infection. So, so I, do, I think there's lots of reasons that we should consider vaccinating, you know, younger populations as well as the the healthcare workers and the elderly. As a, a professor in infectious diseases, uh, I imagine, Jack Lambert, uh, you have a, a mantra which is prevention is better than cure. Uh, but you wouldn't argue with having a, a cure, would you? And uh, it seems as though uh, there's the prospect of that with an antiviral pill that they're trying out in the UK now. Uh, yeah. What What do you make of that? Well, I, th- I think this is something that, that the UK thought about six months ago because they have they, they seem that they've got a group of scientists who are proactively planning this epidemic, and I think in Ireland, unfortunately, we we have a group on top who are reacting to numbers and 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 you know reacting to every crisis. So so I I do think that a gap in our you know strategy in Ireland is obviously coming up with some of the same. Treatment recommendations, you know, early intervention, early treatment for for both in terms of prevention, but as soon as you get infected, early treatment to to avoid, you know, kind of on onward, you know, admissions to hospital, admissions to ICU. So I, I think I think it's another another example of of, of Ireland's fa- fa- failure to kind of proactively be planning for the long run to to live safely with COVID. Okay, but. Uh, if you're not preventing the numbers from rising, I take it you have to react uh, to the numbers or else you're looking at uh, the possibility of uh, the health service collapsing. And that's always been uh, on the mind 
uh, of uh, the authorities, uh, I'm sure. And as case rises, uh, case numbers rise uh, in line with that, so do hospital numbers and uh, the number of people in, in ICU. And uh, if there is a threat of that uh, rising to an extent uh, that uh, the service is overwhelmed, you're in real trouble because uh, you may be in a position where you can't offer ICU care to somebody or you're preventing people from uh, got to, uh, having elective procedures, uh, some very serious operations because there wouldn't be an ICU bed for them. Uh, and we're looking at very big figures at, at the moment. Uh, what does that mean in, in terms of what the reaction might be do you think that there may be uh, another lockdown? And if so, could that be before Christmas? Right. And, and, and my opinion is, is that I, I, think, I think the lockdowns are, are, are not a successful strategy. And we, we shouldn't even be entertaining that. Um, I think the, the, the issue is we keep on chasing numbers. We keep on chasing numbers. Oh, the numbers are going up. I mean, I walk to city centre and I walk into the malls and there's congregations of people with no masks on and this and that. It's sort of like we're not doing things right. We're not doing this right. We're not. We're, we're not even enforcing it. You know, the, the thing is. So I think living safely with COVID requires, you know, that that things to be done right and and it to be enforced. You know, that that's the thing. If we open up the the, you know, if, if you go to a restaurant and somebody just you have something a piece of paper that could be a newspaper, they don't even look at it, they don't scan it, they don't do anything, and then people walk around and don't do the COVID prevention strategies. The numbers are going to go up if we don't do things right. And we're not doing things right in, in, in a lot of situations. So I, so I think we actually have to just kind of get campaigns you know, on board. We, 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 I think we, we, we put too much emphasis back in, you know, all this over the summer saying, we are going to not open up until November when 90% of people are vaccinated. Well, look, here we are. 90% of people are vaccinated. Have the numbers gone down? No, they're up again. It's the other stuff that's, that's equally important. The masks, the social distancing, the, the appropriate COVID prevention strategies. And I just think we, we've never really emphasized that or enforced it. Mm. And, I think we, and I think we should be doing all of those things to otherwise... The, the, the only other option is a lockdown, but why not give people an opportunity to do things right and then put, put systems in place to, to, to make sure people are doing right? And if they're not doing it right, then, they're, they're, you know, if, if, if I went to a pub and it was filled with people, nobody wear a mask and nobody was paying any attention, I, I'd close down the pub. It's a, it's a hazard, right? Mm. You know? um, so I think we actually have to have to, you know, teach the Irish population that they have individual responsibility, but the government also have, have, have a responsibility to give them guidance and to ensuring that, to the best of their ability, that people are adhering to all of the prevention strategies. Um, because if you do it wrong, you know, the consequence could be you could be responsible for somebody getting COVID and dying. That's unacceptable. There's a lot of people who are following the guidelines to the letter, uh, I suppose, on the other hand. Uh, and I think it's probably true to say that a lot of those people who follow all of the basics, if you like, whether it's washing hands, keeping social distance, wearing masks, cough etiquette, etc., etc., have installed a, a lockdown on themselves. And I, and I, th- I think, yeah, I, unfortunately, like, I mean, there's, there's consequences. There's huge psychological consequences. There's collateral damage from this COVID pandemic. But, you know, we're, we're 19 months into it now, and it's not going to go away. We, we, just, we need to come up with strategies that are going to work for Ireland, that Irish people are going to buy into. And we need leadership on top that's going to proactively look to the future, not just model Armageddon, 
the hospital has been overwhelmed once again. Mm. We're not going to be able to, 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 to function. The problems with hospital beds and ICU beds in Ireland has been going for 10 years, you know. Mm. <laughs> it's not a new problem. The issue is, is how, how do we deal, you know, what's the Irish solution? And the Irish solution is to, is to proactively do th- This is an emergency. Do things, do it quickly, do it, do it right. Is it permanent? Uh, and... Uh, I asked that question uh, because uh, I think a lot of people expected it to be over by now, but this could go on for some time. And if it is ever over, it could uh, be replaced by uh, a different uh, virus uh, or another variant or or something. Are we going to be living with this type of thing permanently? Well, I I don't see any new viruses coming along. I think COVID's bad enough and and COVID is not dying out. COVID is getting stronger. Um, and and the the same strategy, like I said, we, we we've had for pandemic flu for you know for for a hundred years now. We're going to have to kind of apply to, to COVID nineteen. We don't go into lockdown for for influenza. We shouldn't begin into lockdown for COVID nineteen. But we should be focusing on ways to keep the numbers down. Okay. Right now, we're just watching the numbers and and modeling. You know, you know what if? I think let, let's let's not think about what if. Let, let's avoid it happening in the first place. Would be my my suggestion to to everybody. You know, mm. listening to this call. Mind yourself. Okay, okay. thank you, thank you very much indeed. Uh, as always, uh, much appreciated. Uh, that's uh, Professor Jack Lambert, uh, Professor of Medicine and a consultant in infectious diseases at the UCD School of Medicine. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you know, Greta Thunberg will be in Glasgow with uh, plenty of people demonstrating uh, against uh, climate change uh, tomorrow and indeed the blah, 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 as she says, has been taking place at COP26. COP Coalition 26, Global Day of Action is tomorrow and there'll be protests all over Europe, I think. Uh, There'll be one in Dublin. Let's go to Glenda Camino, who's a member of the Irish anti-war movement steering committee and an American citizen and a very good morning to you Glenda and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. You'll be protesting in Parnell Square tomorrow I'm sure you'll be very concerned about climate uh, but uh, you'll also be concerned about war and militarism. Yes well you have to realise that anti-war activists are also climate justice justice activists and the thing that we're concerned with is that energy is the lifeblood of wars And yet when they have climate change conferences, they never talk about the use of fossil fuels by the war and by militarism. Mm. And when I say militarism, I don't mean just the wars themselves, but what's used in the preparation for war, the maintenance of of bases and arms and the, the actual war itself. And then you have the aftermath of war, which has maimed people, starvation, refugees, and the cost of reconstructing damaged and destroyed infrastructures. So there's, they use a huge amount. Um, people may not realize that if, if the Department of Defense in the U.S. was a country, it would be about 50 from the top of the largest fossil fuel-using countries and green health gas countries. It's about the same level as Portugal, Sweden, or Denmark. Yeah, I, I think um, they spend billions uh, on uh, military spending. Uh, and money trillions uh, uh, and uh, undoubtedly uh, an awful lot of the world's problems could be solved uh, if that money was redirected absolutely absolutely even if one b52 or f45 crosses 
crashes into the desert like or if a number of like humvees and um tanks are left behind for isis all of these things cost money to build and when they're left behind they're used by really pretty bad actors Mm, yeah, well, we've uh, seen a lot of stuff left behind in Afghanistan uh, in the last couple of months as well. Well, we have to also look at the toxic effects of the military actions in other countries, not just the U.S., but in particular the U.S., because the U.S. actually spends more on its military than the next 10 countries combined. Mm. Um, and we have to look at things like what's happened in Vietnam. Agent Orange is still poisoning the country. Yeah. Fallujah that, 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 and the other parts of Iraq totally devastated mm. by depleted uranium, mm. which they knew would become toxic and, and cause birth defects and kill people. And yet they used it because it made it easier to penetrate tanks. Yeah. So there's not a great consideration for human life. Well, the most powerful country in the world, <laughs> the greatest army in the world, uh, but not particularly good at uh, fighting wars, uh, if you think uh, of Vietnam, Iraq or Afghanistan for that matter. No, the U.S. has been really going the wrong direction, in my view, for quite a long time. And it's about time that they wake up and, you know, 80, maybe 80 bases, 800 bases in 80 countries, Mm. including countries where they're not officially declared wars, but where they're actually what they still call anti-terrorist operations and the war against terror. And all of these things, you know, they not only use a lot of energy and they're run like, you know, Fossil fuel is the lifeblood of war. You have to say that. If they don't have fossil fuels, they can't, you know, fly their planes with jet fuel. They can't, you know, power their bases. They can't heat and cool, you know, thousands, millions of buildings in all these different places. Even these things are actually destructive. I think if there's going to be an army, it should be, from now on, devoted to planting trees and cleaning the rivers and um, stop using, um, you know, firefighting sprays that include PFOAs that that actually are toxic to growing things. We have to focus now on the climate for us, and we are part of nature. If we destroy nature, we're like parasites that destroy their host. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, well, it sounds a a little bit more appealing to me than dropping bombs on other people's sons. If uh, people want uh, to walk with you tomorrow, you'll be in Parnell Square at 12, is it? Uh, yes, some of us will be in Parnell Square at 12 and some of us will be at the, the monument at the other end of Parnell Square holding our banner and giving out leaflets on the destruction of the military. I'd like to also say that it's an illusion that people, that countries ever win wars. I mean, who was winning in Yemen where over 10,000 children have already died and where starvation is, is a huge factor? Who's winning in Ethiopia? Mm. Someone said you can't win a war any more than you can win a volcano. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Probably so, but I'm sure somebody's getting very rich on the back of it at the same time, Glenda. Of course there are. Uh, We hmm. really need to, like, put the spotlight on the arms industry and shut that down. Um, And yet at the moment, it appears that we're actually entering into a new um, kind of an arms race where uh, U.S., China, North Korea, Russia are all developing you know, new kinds of missiles, including including uh, nuclear missiles and what they call, like, you know, usable ones. Like, none of them are usable. They're all... Cr- war itself should be a crime against humanity. People talk about war crimes, but mm. war is a crime. It should never be the first option. 
Okay. And that's what it has been in the 21st century. Okay, noon in Parnell Square tomorrow. Thank you, Glenda Camino, uh, member of uh, the Irish Anti-War Movement Steering Committee and an American citizen. Now, uh, let's uh, go back uh, to some more thoughts on coronavirus uh, and indeed uh, the increase in cases, not just here, but across Europe. The reality for, for Europe in general is that we've had that again, and it's we're two years into this, but we seem to be constantly surprised by the the simple behaviour of viral pathogens. Um, We have come out of a summer period with increased mixing, increased mobility, increased gatherings. A lot of restrictions have been reduced. The onus has been put back on individuals to continue individual risk management with little support from the uh, governments in in being able to to continue doing that. Temperatures have dropped. Uh, The weather has disimproved. And, and people are moving back inside. Um, and they're doing that in two contexts. Um, in the context of um, countries that have relatively or very high vaccination levels in vulnerable groups, but transmission has been transferred into younger age groups, so you have intense transmission without necessarily uh, a huge increase in, 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 in hospitalizations and deaths. Um, and then you have other scenarios in which there's been relatively low vaccine uptake in some countries, and they're really facing into a very difficult situation because they have suboptimal vaccine coverage. And there are countries in Europe who have this. There may be plenty of vaccine available, but uptake of vaccine has not been equal. And uptake of vaccine, particularly amongst highly vulnerable groups. So when you look at coverage of vaccination in any country and say it's 60%, for me, I want to know which, who's covered. If you've got 95 or 99% of people over 65 with underlying conditions covered, then clearly you're not going to have the same risk. Uh, if, uh, if half of your vulnerable population are still not covered with vaccine, then they remain extremely vulnerable in a context of increasing intensity of transmission. Okay, that's uh, Dr. Mike Ryan of uh, the World Health Organization. We might hear more from Dr. Ryan before we finish up today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, thanks uh, to our listener, uh, who I think is working in uh, the health service in uh, the northeast of uh, the country. They say no amount of money would pay you to work on uh, the front line. Uh, how are you supposed to go home and sleep in your bed after a day working in an ICU ward in this part of uh, the country? I've put in one hell of a, a week, and our listener tells us about some very sick people and two members of uh, the same family. Uh, who are in the beds next to each other in ICU. Very distressed listener, I would think, reading between the lines of the text. And thank you indeed for taking the time to get in touch with us. Somebody else uh, saying, why did the government open up uh, the late nightclubs and discos two weeks ago? This was a crazy decision. Thanks uh, for that uh, on uh, the subject of uh, antisocial behaviour. Uh, Betty says, as a, a true city centre dub born in the 50s, why no drug addicts have to go to Dublin, one for their fix? They should be able to go to a clinic or a health centre where they live and let these people be able to ramble around the town for the pleasure uh, as we did uh, with our mothers. And uh, we were safe uh, back in the old days. Uh, the city is destroyed. Uh, with drug addicts these days, says Betty, who sent us that message. Thanks, Betty. Margaret Y says, it's the other way around when it comes uh, to the Northern Ireland Protocol. It's actually Boris Johnson who's saying to the EU and America, 
uh, give us a, a great trade deal or we'll pull the plug on the protocol. Britain cares nothing about any people in Northern Ireland, says Mag Y in her text message to us. And thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to uh, let us know your thoughts as well. Paul is in County Mead and he says he'll be watching with interest to see what grants the government make available to help people to retrofit their homes. It would want to be a significant amount of money or else very few people will be able to afford it, he says. Thanks for that, Paul. I think the idea might be, and you might want to hear this, the idea might be you mightn't be able to afford not to uh, because uh, the price of oil or coal or gas might be so expensive that it may be cheaper to retrofit your home and uh, then heat it for next to nothing. I I, I don't know uh, if that's where we're going, but watch that space. Now, speaking of climate, here's a real champion in uh, the fight for... Uh, climate and indeed against uh, climate change. Mary Robinson. It is great to think of a world where we won't waste a third of the food in our world. Isn't that shocking to waste a third of the food when we know about a lot of hunger and malnourishment and, and, and various other problems? As I often say, quoting my dear friend and former um, chair, he was one of my predecessors, of the elders, Archbishop Tutu, he always described himself as a prisoner of hope, and I have adopted that. I'm not an optimist, I'm a prisoner of hope. I truly believe that in the midst of our current challenge, we have the opportunities for great creativity. We can integrate human rights and social concerns with climate transition processes and do more to support communities in adapting to climate change in ways that ensure fairness and equity. And that's our common challenge. And thank you again, to the Institute for Human Rights and Business for bringing us together to have this conversation. Thank you. That's uh, former President Mary Robinson, uh, who is speaking on the fringes of uh, the COP26 conference in Glasgow. One of uh, the people who drew most uh, attention uh, wasn't a politician. Uh, He's well known to everybody, I suppose. Uh, A household name, if ever there was, 95 years of age, David Attenborough. Can we fix climate problem in one generation? My answer would be yes, we have to. We need to not just to talk about what we can do, but to do what we can. This is a challenge that we should try to solve in a quick way with a long-term vision. It comes down to this. The people alive now are the generation to come. We'll look at this conference and consider one thing. Did that number stop rising and start to drop as a result of commitments made here? There's every reason to believe that the answer can be yes. If working apart, we are force powerful enough to destabilize our planet, surely working together, we are powerful enough to save it. In my lifetime, I've witnessed a terrible decline. In yours, you could and should witness a wonderful recovery. That desperate hope, ladies and gentlemen, delicate, excellency, is why the world is looking to you and why you are here. Thank you.
The great David Attenborough, just part of his presentation to COP26 uh, this week. And uh, speaking about uh, the commitments or the actions, if you prefer, being made by governments around uh, the world, Patton Balbriggan was in touch with us, saying he was listening to what he thought was a load of rubbish from his local Green Party TD on uh, the programme uh, this morning. That's Minister Joe O'Brien, of course. He says the Green Party doesn't care where the people are meant to get their money from. I'm a pensioner who, on the advice uh, of a politician, changed my car to diesel a few years ago, heat my house with oil and coal. Where does the Green Party think people like me are going to get the €30,000 to buy an electric car and another 30000 to retrofit my house? Thanks, Pat. That's all the time we have today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.